0: Book Two, Chapters Eleven and Twelve of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Book Two, Chapter Eleven. What Happened to Them While They Were Before the Justice. A Chapter Very Full of Learning. Their fellow travelers were so engaged in the hot dispute concerning the division of the reward for apprehending these innocent people that they attended very little to their discourse they were now arrived at the justice's house and had sent one of his servants in to acquaint his worship that they had taken two robbers and brought them before him the justice who was just returned from a fox chase and had not yet finished his dinner ordered them to carry the prisoners into the stable whither they were attended by all the servants in the house and all the people in the neighbourhood who flocked together to see them with as much curiosity as if there was something uncommon to be seen or that a rogue did not look like other people the justice now being in the height of his mirth and his cups, bethought himself of the prisoners, and telling his company he believed they should have good sport in their examination, he ordered them into his presence. They had no sooner entered the room than he began to revile them, saying, That robberies on the highway were now grown so frequent that people could not sleep safely in their beds and assured them they both should be made examples of at the ensuing assizes after he had gone on some time in this manner he was reminded by his clerk that it it would be proper to take the dispositions of the witnesses against them which he bid him do, and he would light his pipe in the meantime. Whilst the clerk was employed in writing down the deposition of the fellow who had pretended to be robbed, the justice employed himself in cracking jests on poor Fanny, in which he was seconded by all the company at table. One asked, "'whether she was to be (laughs) indicted for a highwayman,' "'another whispered in her ear. "'If she had not provided herself a great belly, "'he was at her service. "'A third said, "'he warranted she was a relation of Turpin,' "'to which one of the company, a great wit, "'shaking his head and then his sides, answered, (laughs) he <laughs> believed she was nearer related to Turpis. at which there was an universal laugh they were proceeding thus with the poor girl when somebody smoking the cassock peeping forth from under the great-coat of adams cried out what have we here a parson how sirrah says the justice do you go robbing "'in the dress of a clergyman, let me tell you, "'your habit will not entitle you to the benefit of the clergy.' "'Yes,' said the witty fellow, "'he will have one benefit of clergy. "'He will be exalted above the heads of the people,' "'at which there was a second laugh.' "'And now the witty spark, seeing his jokes take, "'began to rise in spirits.' And turning to Adams, challenged him to cap verses, and provoking him by giving the first blow, he repeated, "Mole meum levibus cord est vilabile talis." Upon which Adams, with a look full of ineffable contempt, told him he deserved scouring for his pronunciation. The witty fellow answered. What do you deserve, doctor, for not being able to answer the first time? Why, I'll give one, you blockhead, with an S. Si licit ut vulvum spectator in ignibus haurum. What, canst not with an M neither? Thou art a pretty fellow for a parson. Why, didst not steal some of the parson's Latin?' (laughs) as well as his gown another at the table then answered if he had you would have been too hard for him i remember you at the college a very devil at this sport i have seen you catch a freshman for nobody that knew you would engage with you Ugh! Oh, i have forgotten those things now cried the wit i believe i could have done pretty well formerly. let's see what did I end with? An M, I. Mars, Bacchus, Apollo, V, Vorum. I could have done it once. Ah, evil betide you, and so you can now, said the other. Nobody in this country will undertake you. Adams could hold no longer. Friend, said he, I have a boy not above eight years old, Who would instruct thee that the last verse runs thus ud sunt divorum mars bacchus apollo virorum i'll hold thee a guinea of that said the wit throwing the money on the table and and i'll go your halves cries the other done answered adams but upon applying to his pocket he was forced to retract and own he had no money about him which set them all a-laughing, and confirmed the triumph of his adversary, which was not moderate, any more than the approbation he met with from the whole company, who told Adams he must go a little longer to school before he attempted to attack that gentleman in Latin. The clerk, having finished the depositions, As well of the fellow himself as of those who apprehended the prisoners, delivered them to the justice, who, having sworn the several witnesses without reading a syllable, ordered his clerk to make the mittimus. Adams then said he hoped he should not be condemned unheard. No, no, cries the justice. You will be asked what you have to say for yourself when you come on your trial. We are not trying you now. (laughs) I shall only commit you to jail. If you can prove your innocence at size, you will be found ignoramus, and so no harm done. Is it no punishment, sir, for an innocent man to lie several months in jail, cries Adams, I beg you would at least hear me before you sign the Mittimus. What signifies all you can say, says the Justice, is it not here in black and white against you? I must tell you, you are a very impertinent fellow to take up so much of my time. So make haste with his Mittimus. The clerk now acquainted the Justice that among other suspicious things, as a penknife, etc., found in Adam's pocket, they had discovered a book, written, as he apprehended, in ciphers, for no one could read a word of it. "'Aye,' says the Justice, "'the fellow may be more than a common robber. He may be in a plot against the government. Produce the book.' upon which the poor manuscript of Aeschylus, which Adams had transcribed with his own hand, was brought forth. And the Justice, looking at it, shook his head, and, turning to the prisoner, asked the meaning of those ciphers. Ciphers, answered Adams, it is a manuscript of Aeschylus. Who, who, said the Justice, Adams repeated, Aeschylus. That is an outlandish name, cried the clerk. A fictitious name, rather, I believe, said the justice. One of the company declared it looked very much like Greek. Greek, said the justice, why, 'tis all writing.' No, says the other, I don't possibly say it is so, for it is a very long time since I have seen any Greek. "'There's one,' says he, turning to the parson of the parish, "'who was present. Will tell us immediately.' The parson, taking up the book, and putting on his spectacles and gravity together, muttered some words to himself, and then pronounced aloud, "'Aye, indeed, it is a Greek manuscript, a very fine piece of antiquity. "'I make no doubt, but it was st- stolen from the same clergyman, from whom the rogue took the cassock. "'What did the rascal mean by his Aeschylus?' says the justice. Pooh," answered the doctor, with a contemptuous grin. "'Do you think that fellow knows anything of this book? Aeschylus! (laughs) I see now what it is, a manuscript of one of the fathers.' I know a nobleman who would give a great deal of money for such a piece of antiquity. I, I, question and answer. The beginning is the catechism, in Greek. I, I, polaki toy. What's your name? I, what's your name? Says the justice to Adams, who answered, It is Aeschylus, and I will maintain it oh it is says the justice make mr aeschylus his mittimus. i will teach you to banter me with a false name one of the company having looked steadfastly at adams asked him if he did not know lady booby upon which adams presently calling him to mind answered in a rapture oh squire are you here "'I believe you will inform his worship I am innocent.' "'I can indeed say,' replied the squire, "'that I am very much surprised to see you in this situation.' And then, addressing himself to the justice, he said, "'Sir, I assure you Mr. Adams is a clergyman, as he appears, "'and a gentleman of a very good character.' I WISH YOU WOULD inquire A LITTLE FARTHER INTO THIS AFFAIR, FOR I AM CONVINCED OF HIS INNOCENCE. NAY, SAYS THE JUSTICE, IF HE IS A GENTLEMAN, AND YOU ARE SURE HE IS INNOCENT, I DON'T DESIRE TO COMMIT HIM, NOT I. I WILL COMMIT THE WOMAN BY HERSELF, AND TAKE YOUR BAIL FOR THE GENTLEMAN. LOOK INTO THE BOOK, CLERK, AND SEE HOW IT IS TO TAKE BAIL. COME. "'and make the minimus for the woman as fast as you can.' "'Sir,' cries Adams, "'I assure you she is as innocent as myself.' "'Perhaps,' said the squire, "'there may be some mistake. "'Pray, let us hear Mr. Adams's relation.' "'With all my heart,' answered the Justice, "'and give the gentleman a glass to wet his whistle before he begins.' I know how to behave myself to gentlemen as well as any other. Nobody can say I have committed a gentleman since I have been in the commission. Adams then began the narrative, in which, though he was very prolix, he was not interrupted, unless by several hums and haws of the justice, and his desire to repeat those parts which seemed to him— most material when he had finished the justice who on what the squire had said believed every syllable of his story on his bare affirmation notwithstanding the depositions on oath to the contrary began to let loose several rogues and rascals against the witness whom he ordered to stand forth but in vain the said witness long since finding what turn matters were likely to take had privily withdrawn without attending the issue the justice now flew into a violent passion and was hardly prevailed with not to commit the innocent fellows who had been imposed on as well as himself he swore They had best find out the fellow who was guilty of perjury, and bring him before him within two days, or he would bind them over to their good behaviour. They all promised to use their best endeavours to that purpose, and were dismissed. Then the Justice insisted that Mr. Adams should sit down and take a glass with him, and the parson of the parish delivered him back the manuscript without saying a word. Nor would Adams, who plainly discerned his ignorance, expose it. As for Fanny, she was, at her own request, recommended to the care of a maid-servant of the house, who helped her to new dress and clean herself. The company in the parlour had not been long seated, before they were alarmed with a horrible uproar from without, where the persons who had apprehended Adams and Fanny had been regaling, according to the custom of the house, with the justices' strong beer. These were all fallen together by their ears, and were cuffing each other without any mercy. The justice himself sallied out, and with the dignity of his presence, soon put an end to the fray. On his return into the parlour he reported that the occasion of the quarrel was no other than a dispute to whom, if Adams had been convicted, the greater share of the reward for apprehending him had belonged. All the company laughed at this, except Adams, who was taking his pipe from his mouth, fetched a deep groan, and said, HE WAS CONCERNED TO SEE SO LITIGIOUS A TEMPER IN MEN, THAT HE REMEMBERED A STORY, SOMETHING LIKE IT, IN ONE OF HIS PARISHES, WHERE HIS CURE LAY. THERE WAS, CONTINUED HE, A COMPETITION BETWEEN THREE YOUNG FELLOWS FOR THE PLACE OF THE CLERK, WHICH I DISPOSED OF, TO THE BEST OF MY ABILITIES, ACCORDING TO MERIT that is i gave it to him who had the happiest knack at setting a psalm the clerk was no sooner established in his place than a contention began between the two disappointed candidates concerning their excellence each contending on whom had they too been the only competitors my election would have fallen this dispute frequently disturbed the congregation, and introduced a discord into the psalmody, till I was forced to silence them both. But, alas, the litigious spirit could not be stifled, and being no longer able to vent itself in singing, it now broke forth in fighting. It produced many battles, for they were very near a match, and I believe would have ended fatally had not the death of the clerk given me an opportunity to promote one of them to his place, which, presently, put an end to the dispute, and entirely reconciled the contending parties. Adams then proceeded to make some philosophical observations on the folly of growing warm in disputes in which neither party is interested He then applied himself vigorously to smoking, and a long silence ensued, which was at length broke by the Justice, who began to sing forth his own praises, and to value himself exceedingly on his nice discernment in the cause which had lately been before him. He was quickly interrupted by Mr. Adams, between whom, and his worship, a dispute now arose— whether he ought not in strictness of law to have committed him the said adams in which the latter maintained he ought to have been committed and the justice as vehemently held he ought not this had most probably produced a quarrel for both were very violent and positive in their opinions had not fanny accidentally heard that a young fellow was going from the justice's house to the very inn, where the stagecoach in which Joseph was, put up. Upon this news, she immediately sent for the parson out of the parlour. Adams, when he found her resolute to go, though she would not own the reason, but pretended she could not bear to see the faces of those who had suspected her of such a crime, was as fully determined to go with her. He, accordingly, took leave of the justice and company, and so ended a dispute in which the law seemed shamefully to intend to set a magistrate and a divine together by the ears. CHAPTER Twelve, A VERY DELIGHTFUL ADVENTURE AS WELL TO THE PERSONS CONCERNED AS TO THE GOOD-NATURED READER Adams, Fanny, and the guide set out together about one in the morning, the moon being then just risen. They had not gone above a mile before a most violent storm of rain obliged them to take shelter in an inn, or rather alehouse, where Adams immediately procured himself a good fire, a toast and ale, and a pipe and began to smoke with great content, utterly forgetting everything that had happened. Fanny sat likewise down by the fire, but was much more impatient at the storm. She presently engaged the eyes of the host, his wife, the maid of the house, and the young fellow who was their guide. They all conceived they had never seen anything half so handsome, and, indeed, reader, if thou art of an amorous hue i advise thee to skip over the next paragraph which to render our history perfect we are obliged to set down humbly hoping that we may escape the fate of pygmalion for if it should happen to us or to thee to be struck with this picture we should be, perhaps, in as helpless a condition as Narcissus, and might say to ourselves, Quod petis est nusquam." Or, if the finest features in it should set Lady Blank's image before your eyes, we should be still in as bad a situation, and might say to our desires, Colum ipsum petimus stultitia. Fanny was now in the nineteenth year of her age. She was tall and delicately shaped, but not one of those slender young women who seem rather intended to hang up in the hall of an atomist than for any other purpose. On the contrary, she was so plump that she seemed bursting through her tight stays, especially in the part which confined her swelling breasts, nor did her hips want the assistance of a hoop to extend them. The exact shape of her arms denoted the form of those limbs which she concealed, and though they were a little reddened by her labour, yet if her sleeve slipped above her elbow, or her handkerchief discovered any part of her neck, a whiteness appeared which the finest Italian paint, would be unable to reach. Her hair was of a chestnut brown, and nature had been extremely lavish to her of it, which she had cut, and on Sundays used to curl around her neck, in the modern fashion. Her forehead was high, her eyebrows arched, and rather full than otherwise, her eyes black and sparkling, her nose just inclining to the Roman, her lips red and moist, and her underlip, according to the opinion of the ladies, too pouting. Her teeth were white, but not exactly even. The smallpox had left one mark on her chin, which was so large it might have been mistaken for a dimple had not her left cheek produced one so near a neighbour to it, that the former served only for a foil to the latter. Her complexion was fair, a little injured by the sun, but overspread with such a bloom, that the finest ladies would have exchanged all their white for it. Add to these a countenance in which, though she was extremely bashful, a sensibility appeared almost incredible and a sweetness whenever she smiled beyond either imitation or description to conclude all she had a natural gentility superior to the acquisition of art and which surprised all who beheld her this lovely creature was sitting by the fire with Adams. WHEN HER ATTENTION WAS SUDDENLY ENGAGED BY A VOICE FROM AN INNER ROOM, WHICH SUNG THE FOLLOWING SONG. THE SONG Say, Chloe, where must the swain stray, Who is by thy beauties undone? To wash their remembrance away, To what distant Lethe must run? The wretch who is sentenced to die may escape, and leave justice behind from his country perhaps he may fly but oh can he fly from his mind oh rapture unthought of before to be thus of chloe possessed nor she nor no tyrant's hard power her image can tear from my breast but felt not narcissus more joy with his eyes he beheld his loved charms yet what he beheld the fond boy most eagerly wished in his arms how can it thy dear image be which fills thus my bosom with woe can aught bear resemblance to thee which grief and not joy can bestow this counterfeit snatch from my heart ye powers though with torment i rave though mortal will prove the fell smart i then shall find rest in my grave ah see the dear nymph o'er the plain come smiling and tripping along a thousand loves dance in her train the graces around her all throng to meet her soft zephyrus flies And wafts all the sweets from the flowers. Ah, rogue I, whilst he kisses her eyes, More sweets from her breath he devours. My soul, whilst I gaze, is on fire, But her looks were so tender and kind, My hope almost reached my desire, And left lame despair far behind. Transported with madness, I flew, And eagerly seized on my bliss, Her bosom, but half she withdrew, But half she refused my fond kiss. Advances like these made me bold, I whispered her, Love, we're alone, The rest let immortals unfold, No language can tell but their own ah chloe expiring i cried how long i thy cruelty bore ah strephon she blushing replied you ne'er was so pressing before adams had been ruminating all this time on a passage in aeschylus without attending in the least to the voice though one of the most melodious that ever was heard when casting his eyes on fanny he cried out bless us you look extremely pale pale mr adams says she oh jesus and fell backwards in her chair adams jumped up flung his aeschylus into the fire and fell a-roaring to the people of the house for help he soon summoned every one into the room and the songster among the rest but O oh, reader when this nightingale who was no other than joseph andrews himself saw his beloved fanny in the situation we have described her canst thou conceive the agitations of his mind if thou canst not wave that meditation to behold his happiness when CLASPING HER IN HIS ARMS, HE FOUND LIFE AND BLOOD RETURNING INTO HER CHEEKS. WHEN HE SAW HER OPEN HER BELOVED EYES, AND HEARD HER, WITH THE SOFTEST ACCENT, WHISPER, ARE YOU JOSEPH Andrews? ART THOU MY FANNY, HE ANSWERED EAGERLY, AND PULLING HER TO HIS HEART, HE IMPRINTED NUMBERLESS KISSES ON HER LIPS, WITHOUT CONSIDERING. were present if prudes are offended at the lusciousness of this picture they may take their eyes off from it and survey parson adams dancing about the room in a rapture of joy some philosophers may perhaps doubt whether he was not the happiest of the three for the goodness of his heart enjoyed the blessings which were exulting in the breasts of both the other two, together with his own. But we shall leave such disquisitions as too deep for us, to those who are building some favourite hypothesis, which they will refuse no metaphysical rubbish to erect and support. For our part we give it clearly on the side of Joseph, whose happiness was not only greater than the parson's but of longer duration for as soon as the first tumults of adam's rapture were over he cast his eyes towards the fire where aeschylus lay expiring and immediately rescued the poor remains to wit the sheepskin covering of his dear friend which was the work of his own hands and had been his inseparable companion for upwards of thirty years. Fanny had no sooner perfectly recovered herself than she began to restrain the impetuosity of her transports, and reflecting on what she had done, and suffered in the presence of so many, she was immediately covered with confusion, and pushing Joseph gently from her, she begged him to be quiet, nor would admit of either kiss or embrace any longer. Then, seeing Mrs. Slipslop, she curtsied and offered to advance to her. But that high woman would not return her curtsies, but, casting her eyes another way, immediately withdrew into another room. Muttering, as she went, she wondered who the creature was. End of Book 2, Chapters 11 and 12 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox